Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And then things warmed up a bit. When Jacques Cousteau, uh, our patron for the polls, uh, asked me to come and see him. And I thought, oh God, what did I do wrong this time? Has there been some complaint from a sponsor or the bank manager on the phone to him? Went to go and see him and he said, right, Rob, what are you doing for the next 50 years, young man? Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and episode 61 with Robert Swan. Rob is a polar exploration legend in the truest sense of the word and is the first person in history to walk to both the North and South Poles. But Rob's journeys in the colder corners of this world were often far from easy and a serious incident involving a sinking ship changed the course of his life forever when Jacques Cousteau personally charged Rob with protecting and preserving Antarctica and giving him 50 years to do it. In this episode, we talk about Rob's life and his journeys, what it's like to consistently bite off more than you can chew, the burden and power of failure, and also how if you say you're going to do something, then you better do it. Rob talks about other explorers in this episode, particularly referencing Ben regularly. In these instances, Rob is referring to polar explorer Ben Saunders, who many of you will be familiar with. But for those who aren't, Ben has appeared on the podcast a few times himself, so you can go and seek out those episodes. Finally, I'll just quickly mention that the podcast is produced in association with Sidetrack magazine. If you're looking for incredible, honest and authentic stories of adventure and exploration, then head to Sidetrack.com. Okay, over to Rob Swan. guess it would be good to begin by introducing yourself uh, in the way that we always tend to with these sorts of things. My name is Robert Swan and I am and I suppose I will always be the first person in history to have skied and walked to the North and South Poles and right now my commitment is to make sure that in the year 2041 that the world sees sense to leave one place alone on Earth, the Antarctic, as a natural reserve land for science and peace. Excellent. And no doubt we'll come back to all of that in serious detail, but it would be great to understand what your early life was like and your inspiration and how you ended up going on expedition for the first time. I come from a a, a family in the north of England, Um, not much money. But uh, I was lucky to live uh, with plenty of freedom in my life. Um, As a family, we kind of had uh, lots of land in the area that we could roam and explore and walk. And in those days, it didn't matter. You know, you left the home at five in the morning and no one sort of said, where are you going? And have you got your mobile phone with you? And, you know, one would return possibly for some lunch or return, you know, as it got dark. And I think that freedom as a young person in the north of England on the River Tees um, was, I think, part and parcel of me wanting freedom. However, I had absolutely no interest at all in anything outward bound. I was a runner, a cyclist, a rugby player, 
tennis player, uh, cricketer, but I wasn't somebody who was desperate to go off and spend the night in a tent or really get that cold. Uh, I became interested in polar exploration at the age of 11 when I saw Scott of the Antarctic starring Johnny Mills, the great uh, British actor. And it interested me as a kid, two things about that. One was that this is an extraordinary place that I've never really learnt about or don't know. And even then I was interested that no one owned it. And secondly, is it really upset me, kind of pissed me off actually, that Captain Scott you know, arrived at the South Pole to find the flipping Norwegian flag flying there because Amundsen had beat him by a month. Now Amundsen really was the best, uh, incredible, and I learned an awful lot reading, you know, his his plans and preparation. But I kind of thought, even at eleven, and maybe I never grew up, was that maybe I could level the score and make it Scott one, Amundsen one and beat the Norwegians at what they're best at doing, which is skiing to poles. So that was something deep down inside me. I thought, maybe I can beat the bastards. And um, guess what? I didn't do it, but we did it. <laughs> when you say we? Well, as a team. Yes, I, I, I was the first person to do it on my own at that stage. Uh, but this wouldn't have happened. I'd still be in a warehouse talking about doing this if it hadn't been for an incredible team who who helped helped us make it happen. So when was that and what were those early expeditions? Well, in that in I mean sounding a bit like my father, but in those days you could not fly into the Antarctic. Um, no one had walked to the South Pole since Captain Scott and Roel Amundsen 75 years before us. So more people had stood on the moon than had walked to the pole when we were doing this. And to undertake an expedition 35 years ago, you had to buy a ship. You had to sail from London on that ship, arrive at Cape Evans, Ross Island, Antarctica, where you know, Ben and everybody's been since, um, and lived there for nine and a half months in a hut with people that, you know, are great people, but, you know, we didn't even like each other much, even in London. So there you are living for nine and a half months in a hut, and then three of you walk out of that hut, take an enormous deep breath, and think, right, we're going to go to the South Geographic Pole on foot, without GPS, without radio communications, and absolutely no knowledge at all on anybody having been stupid enough to have done this before. So it was quite nerve-wracking. And we set off for the pole on November the 3rd, 1985. And not because of me, but because of Roger Meir, incredible man. Uh, he navigated us. He put all the equipment together that really has been the basis of just about every polar journey since what Roger Meir pioneered up here. Gareth Wood, an incredible guy. And really, I got everybody to the start of the expedition. And I'm not embarrassed to say I can't navigate. Um, I'm not an explorer. I can tie, I think, three reasonably good knots. And to be honest with you, I can think of a hell of a lot of better things to do with my life than live in a tent with smelly men walking nine hours a day, seven days a week for 70 days in a row. No, my job was to get everybody to the start and then hand over to the people who really knew what they were doing, Roger Meir and Gareth Wood, and in my own way, just be a support to them. Uh, and that's why I say we. Uh, but obviously, I don't have to pull my sledge 900 miles and at the beginning, that sledge weighed 180 kilograms. It was pretty heavy. So that first journey to the South Geographic Pole, there was no turning back. When you got to halfway, that was it. You either went back to your base camp or you went on to the pole. 
And once past halfway, that was it. You either got to the pole or you died. So, you know, we did touch in a small way that isolation and commitment of the people I'd read about when I was 11. And it was not all fun, trust me. No, and you, you obviously more than hinted at this with your comment about aeroplanes, but what were the chances of rescue when you were doing that first expedition? Zero. Because you couldn't communicate, you didn't have a radio. Nothing. Um, so that was it. And it was quite nerve-wracking to occasionally see the odd Hercules aeroplane at 35, 40,000 feet above you, and there was no ways you could wave at them. Um, so, yeah, it was reasonably intensive. Um, we reached the South Pole after 70 fairly tough days, lost an awful lot of body weight, but we'd done it, and we believed it was over. But really, that's where the expedition began, because as we arrived at the South Pole, the news of our ship, Southern Quest, being crushed by ice and sinking was the first words we'd heard from the outside world in a year. And we had no idea that this sort of political drama was unfolding while we were walking to the pole because what had happened was uh, Captain Giles Kershaw, our incredible Antarctic pilot, was all set to fly from South America on a tri-turbo DC-3, an incredible plane, to the South Pole to collect us, us three people. And we even had our passports on the sledge. Uh, so we would have been collected by Giles at the South Pole, flown out back to South America, and then our ship, Brave Southern Quest, would have hung off the Antarctic until the ice had gone, go in, pick up, the two people, Mike Stroud and um, Captain John Tolson, and collect all of our equipment. Because way back then, you know, I had, I don't really have any credibility now, but I had none then at all. So it took the help of Jacques Cousteau from France, possibly one of the first real uh, environmental leaders of the ocean. Uh, Jacques Cousteau became my patron, and he asked me, sort of demanded really, that at the end of our expedition, we removed all of our equipment, our base camp, 60 tons of equipment, uh, everything would be removed from Antarctica. So the ship would wait, we'd flown back to South America, yee-haw, job done, the ship would wait, ice goes out, comes in, collects the team, removes the rubbish. However, as we were walking, there was a political storm because we were the first private expedition ever to undertake a journey in Antarctica. So the powers that be, the, the, the United States National Science Foundation, even the British government thought, well, you know, we need to put a nail in this. So they banned Giles flying to the South Pole to collect us on the Tri-Turbo DC-3, expecting us to kind of fold up and ask for help. Um, and thus we would fall into the trap of, yeah, private expeditions, they always need help, you know, they shouldn't come to Antarctica. So our ship was forced to go into the mighty pack ice of the Antarctic uh, a, a month or so earlier than planned. They saw a gap. They unloaded an aeroplane, which we had bought without me knowing, of course, uh, which was put onto our ship and the plane was going to fly to the South Pole, collect us back to the base, load everything up, put the plane back on and head north. That was the plan. But the ship did all of that, unloaded the aeroplane and was 500 yards from open water when the ice came in, took hold of our ship, down she went. So at that moment, we were totally in the shit, to put it bluntly, and we had sort of failed. Um, we'd failed dismally on, you know, lost our ship. We were, you know, the pariahs of the Antarctic, and 
all of that stuff. And the National Science Foundation told us to bulldoze, bulldoze all of our equipment. They would do it. They'd just bulldoze it into the ocean, chuck the plane into the sea, job done. And I thought, and the team thought, no, we can't just fold up. So Gareth, who'd lived a year already in Antarctica, he'd walked to the South Pole, volunteered to spend another year at our base camp. Two volunteers joined him from the ship. Uh, I managed, which I can now tell everybody, to hitch a ride with the US Navy, good guys, the pilots. They secreted us onto the back of a big Hercules aeroplane and no one knew about it. We got back to New Zealand. And one year later, Greenpeace, bless them, had told us that they wanted to go and take over our base because they'd heard that the United States was leaving a lot of garbage in the area from their base camp at McMurdo Sound. And it was all planned that the ship would go in, collect our team, take them out, and Greenpeace would make sure that a year later, all of our equipment was removed from Antarctica. Not sure what I did in my last life, but you know, I get a telephone call in December, right at the end of the beginning of the end of the Antarctic summer, saying the Greenpeace ship couldn't make it in to collect our people. So I thought, okay, fine. So uh, Captain Kershaw and I made the first incredible flight with a twin otter from South America the whole way across the Antarctic to um, Cape Evans, Ross Island, picked up our three people um, and said, we'll get another ship in there one day, or maybe the Greenpeace people would make it, but I couldn't leave Gareth there for three years in a row. Uh, he would run out of food and probably gone insane. Uh, flew them back to South America, landed, huge debt, huge amount of money to make that flight, and the telephone rings, and it's the Greenpeace captain saying, we're arriving at Cape Evans tomorrow. Uh, are your guys ready to come out? So to cut a very long story short, you know, that is just one story of what the In the Footsteps of Scott expedition was all about. It was a battle, but I believe at the end of the deal, you should say, and if you say you're going to do something, you should do it. And I was proud that we delivered on that uh, mission. And to be honest with you, Matt, I think you're the first person I've ever told that story to um, because, you know, it doesn't really matter, does it? But if you're asking how this thing began, that's how it began. And how did you feel? What, where was your mental health? Where was your head and heart? Well, imagine spending these seven years raising the money to do that, living in a warehouse in the East End of London, five years of people saying no but eventually somehow pulling it off with the team. Going on that expedition, arriving, and then the whole thing starts. So for an entire year, I'm thinking, how am I going to pay the debt of like a nearly a million pounds to do all this stuff, losing a ship? You know, I'd lost a ship, uh, and I promised my bank manager, bless his heart, um, that I would pay off my debts by selling the ship. No ship, you can't insure a ship that far south. So it was a it was a pretty desperate time, and the responsibility of having three people in Antarctica to finish a mission that actually no one really cared about cleaning up Antarctica and leaving, you know, it tidy except me and the team and Jack Cousteau. So it was the beginning of a pretty rough ride, not so much from a physical point of view, but from a mental point of view, this was a tough thing because I honestly never celebrated what we'd done. And that was something that I really realized left a hole in me. We'd kind of never done it. I got stuck in doing it. So that was a a really difficult thing to come to grips with. And then being me, of course, 
I said, oh, right, good idea. You know, my dream was to become the first to walk to both poles. So maybe I can pay off some of these debts by going to the North Pole. But if you ask the great Ben Saunders and any other person, you know, this was probably not the best financial decision of my life. But fast forwarded to now heading to the North Pole. Um, it was three years after the South Pole, so 1989. And it was more of a got to get the job done feeling and maybe we'll pay off the debts. But you know, that expedition you know, only tripled the debt. So, you know, this has been a bit of a struggle um, because, again, being me for some strange reason, well, not strange reason, hopefully for the right reasons, I had eight of us from seven different nations making the journey to the North Pole. We had experienced a couple of things in Antarctica that had started us thinking you know, we'd walked to the South Pole, my eyes were changed colour and a face all burnt off and we were told that we'd walked under a hole in the ozone layer. It wasn't discovered. In fact, it was discovered while we were walking. And in those days, you didn't have goggles. You just had a pair of, sort of John Lennon dark glasses and that was about it. So, you know, our eyes would hit. You know, people weren't wearing Factor 50. It didn't exist. Your face is all burnt. And the North Pole was the beginning of trying to do something about our world. So we would have eight of us from seven nations walking to the pole. But just to add to more financial chaos, uh, I, I would have at a base camp 22 young people from 15 different nations who would be there to make educational programs for young people on the issue of the environment, uh, the issue of, uh, of ice, the issue of pollution, all those issues that, you know, 30 years on, fingers crossed, people are starting to take a bit more seriously. The North Pole was, again, not embarrassed to say that, uh, you know, I got everybody to the start point in Cape Columbia. And then the incredible genius, Dr. Misha Malakoff, hero of Russia. Now, that's a serious thing to be a hero of Russia. Misha would lead us incredibly uh, to the North Pole. And again, Rob's job, pull his sledge, keep his head down, help other people. So he led us to the North Pole. And what was life-changing and also extremely annoying is we got, you know, like 100 miles from the pole 30 years ago, and the ice cap melted, the Arctic Ocean melted. And when you're on a journey, and again, you know, no iPhone 12 to ring mummy, no satellite beacons to set off when all was going wrong, the ice cap melted, and we had the most unbelievable fight. And without Misha, Possibly, only he would have possibly stayed alive through this. And, of course, fast forward 30 years, Matt, you can't walk to the North Pole anymore in summer. You can't. Just sort of be completely insane, like Borger Ausland and Mike Horn sort of doing it in the middle of winter with a head torch. You know, only they could do something like that. But, you know, you can't do it because the ice has gone. And this was a sure warning to me 30 years ago that I have to, had to take up a different type of living and do something um, on our environment. And I, I kind of want to make it clear that, you know, I'm not an explorer. I'm not. And I'm not a scientist. I'm far too stupid. And actually, I'm not an environmentalist. I hate the word, and I'm not qualified to be an environmentalist. But what I am is not bad at staying alive. So I would class myself as a, as a, as a moderate survivor. And, you know, if you see the things that I've seen over the years at the poles, <clears throat> which, after all, are made of ice, and 
ice melts at zero degrees, um, you can't just look at that and say, oh, well, whatever, it's somebody else's problem. Um, a survivor looks at something that might come and hit them and tries to do something about it. Yeah, and it's it's very clear that, you know, you've been heavily influenced by those experiences. And before we dive into that, and forgive me because I'm going to ask you a blunt question, do you feel or did you feel guilty about the ship incident? No, not at all, um, because the ship incident kind of set me on the way to what we're trying to do. And although we lost a ship and she's still there at 1,300 feet below the sea, um, it is our intention in 2039 to try and go back and raise the Southern Quest. And although she's tiny, she would have had no impact on the environment particularly, but it'd be a great story that 50 years after you lose a ship, you go back and collect her and then recycle her. At the very worst, go back and at least kind of send something down to, 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 to recognize uh, our little ship. Uh, losing the ship in blunt terms was my fault because it was my idea to go to the Antarctic and follow in the footsteps of Scott. But circumstance and politics pushed that situation on to happen. But I don't blame anybody else but me. The captain was brilliant. The crew were fantastic. Um, and of course, we could have had you know, an icebreaker. But, you know, if you're trying to raise money and you're 23, you can't, you know, add on an extra 20 million to the budget. We did what we did as best we could. And actually, you're right. And I've honestly never thought about this, that possibly our determination to clear up Antarctica, do what we said to do to Jack Cousteau and Gareth spending another year in Antarctica. I think that was inspired by the fact that we knew that was the ship, only 130 tons, at the bottom of the Antarctic Ocean because of us. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I mean, it sounds like you've obviously had a, a fundamental head shift from that initial ambition. Did you have time to kind of revel in the glory of becoming the first person to walk to both? Or was it straight on to the, the new task? No, no, no. I mean, I have debt of I know, two million pounds for the privilege of walking to both poles, which is now because people can fly to Antarctica, and I do, so I'm really pleased. And I wish I'd had that facility 30 odd years ago. But, you know, you could go to both poles three or four times for two million. Um, but that debt <clears throat> had to be paid. No such thing as a free lunch. And what it did for me, and it was a great story, Matt, you'd like this, because, you know, I, I, I thought, hang on, I need to go and see Johnny Mills, Sir John Mills, who acted Captain Scott in the 1949 film Scott of the Antarctic. And I wrote him a letter and I said, look, can I come and see you? Because it's all your bloody fault, pal, as why I'm $2 million in debt. You know, I've just destroyed myself walking to both poles and it's your fault. He said, well, come and see me for lunch, old boy. I went to go and see him and I said, Johnny, what, <clears throat> what am I supposed to do? And he looked at me and he said, right, you've got to talk your way out of this, young man. I said, look, I've talked to the bank manager, the accountants, I'm stuck with it. He said, no, 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 no. I'm going to teach you how to become a reasonably good public speaker. 
and he spent, bless his heart, um, you know, quite a long time over know, a few weeks, I would go and see him. And he taught me the basics of being not bad public speaker. But he said, Rob, I'm giving you the basics, but you need to get your backside out there and practice because public speaking is all about practice. And that became the engine room to pay off our debts, which we did. And, um, you know, it's become the engine room, which has sadly now completely failed currently in 2020, 2021. People often say to me, well, how's it going, Rob? I said, well, actually, I'm an international public speaker. The international bit disappeared, and so did the public. But that engine room created a force to move forward, and it, moving forward wasn't easy because I went through a very low time in my life. And I'm not embarrassed to say that, you know, for a few years, I used to drink a lot, like a hell of a lot, never in the day, but I would crash it down pretty hard at night. Uh, sadly, a lot of it on my own, wasn't really interesting going out to the pub or something. And eventually, as an Englishman, my age had the guts and it took guts to go and talk to somebody about it. It's only lasted like three years, but it was quite intense being me. And this gentleman, bless his heart, he just said, Rob, you're stuck. You're stuck still walking to these poles because you never had the chance to say, yes, we've done this. It's just been one thing. The ship goes, the next pole, more debts, gone on, on. Just stop. And he said, you know, well, you know what you should do? Great guy. He said, go around the corner to WH Smith's and have a look at the book that's at the back of the shelves on the right-hand side. And without sounding pompous, it, it was the Guinness Book of Records. And there's a sort of tiny one line in there somewhere that says, first person to walk to the North and South Poles, Bob Swan, uh, Great Britain or something. And... That was his point. You did it, pal. So don't live in this storm any longer. So we got out of that one. And then things warmed up a bit when Jacques Cousteau, uh, our patron for the polls, uh, asked me to come and see him. And I thought, oh, God, what did I do wrong this time? Has there been some complaint from a sponsor or the bank manager on the phone to him? Went to go and see him. And he said, right, Rob. What are you doing for the next 50 years, young man? And I said, okay, well, can I sit down? Because I'm bound to be told what I'm doing. And he gave me 30 years ago a 50-year mission. No budget, no support. And he died a few years later, but it didn't matter. He said, Rob, can you please help to make sure that we leave Antarctica as a natural reserve land for science and peace. It is the last true great wilderness left on earth. And can you help make sure that happens? And being me, I thought, okay, well, fine, I'll do it. And we've been on that for 30 years now. We've got 20 years to go. And how we've done that, unfortunately, has drawn me back to the very thing I hate more than anything else, and that's walking across ice and snow, pulling a sledge on my back. Um, these things have to happen, I suppose. Yes, I guess they do. And I mean, if there's one man who's going to ask you to go and do that, there's probably nobody better. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, it's an interesting point, actually, that I had to take on a 50-year mission with no budget and the target is something that no one gives a shit about, they don't care about. No one cares about the preservation of Antarctica particularly. Um, it's way off people's radar. So what you could do is take a deep breath and say, okay, how am I going to do this? And it better be good. I'm not going to waste 50 years of my life. So I think that it began with this idea that we must involve youth. And over the last 20 years, We've taken over 4,500 
leaders from over 83 different nations to Antarctica on a ship from South America uh, to Antarctica. And we make sure that those young people or any leaders who come go back as Antarctic ambassadors. They go back as better leaders and have fun, see the last great wilderness left on Earth. And in 20 years time, I'll be on the phone to them saying, right, now you're head of Goldman Sachs. You know, can you please help preserve Antarctica? This is the plan. So youth, as you, I'm sure, are aware, I <clears throat> like practical things. I don't like words particularly, just talking about things. So part of the mission was to go to Antarctica and remove 1,500 tonnes of twisted metal left in Antarctica by the former Soviet Union. Probably one of the worst decisions I've ever made because we had to form a joint cooperation with the Russian government to do that. Don't try one. It took eight years to do it, uh, going there three months every year. And, you know, joint cooperations with the Russian government meant quite a lot of extra money had to go the other way, if you know what I mean. But guess what? We did it and cleared all of that rubbish and garbage from a beach uh, in King George Island called Bellingshausen Station. And obviously I talk about, you know, teamwork and leadership and all that stuff. But, you know, there's one thing I've learned in all of this is to try and be relevant. It's the only leadership tip that I feel I'm worth sharing with people. And it's easy to think that you are relevant and it becomes very irrelevant without knowing. And that might be to the people you love and to your world and your community and the planet. And standing on that beach after eight years of battling, I realized that I wasn't being relevant to help preserve Antarctica. So we moved from young people, which we still are very much active with. We did a practical mission to say, if we want to look after Antarctica, we should clean it. And then the big one, because I realized that it would be KPMG, the accountant who saved Antarctica, because in 2041, they'll come up with some fancy balance sheet saying, hey, it's not worth going there per tonne of gas, per, you know, it's not worth going there, barrel of oil, it's tonne of coal, it's not worth going there financially. How do you make that happen? doesn't take too much, even I could work that one out, use more renewable energy to scale in the real world, and no one's gonna go and exploit Antarctica. So if you stack it up, we got youth, get renewable energy going, and the fact that no one owns it, maybe we've got a chance. So we embarked on a, a campaign that was trying to show that renewable energy does work, I won't go into the boring details, but we've built education stations, one in Antarctica that runs only on renewable energy. No one's there, but it works. And we've got education stations in the United States, in the Middle East, uh, two in India, one in the Himalayas, all working on renewable energy. So young people can engage uh, there, local young people, and then get on now, I suppose it's Zoom, it used to be Skype, uh, to teachers and other young people around the world. So we had education stations, and I felt this was all going really well until my son, Barney, who's now 25, turned around to me and said, Dad, I'm sick and bloody tired of being Robert Swan who walked to both poles 100 years ago's son. I said, well, you're stuck with it, pal, until I die. And he said, no, no, no. I would like to go off with you and undertake a journey to the South Geographic Pole. And I said, Barney, I don't want to do this. I'm tired of all this. And he said, but Dad, what would make you do this with me? What would inspire you to do this? Get off your fat 
backside and let's do it, but tell me how you would like to do it. And I said, okay. And at the back of my brain, something I had not thought about for a really long time is I thought, hang on a minute. If we go from the edge of Antarctica to the South Geographic Pole, and we add in the footsteps of Scott journey 35 years earlier, wow, I would have crossed the Antarctic landmass over 30 odd years, you know, possibly the slowest journey ever made in the history of polar exploration. And I said, yeah, that's one thing, Barney, because it keeps the story going for the engine room that pays the bills. And I said, secondly, Barney, to fit in with our mission to use renewable energy, can we undertake this journey only surviving on renewable energy for the first time in polar history? And he said, okay, let's do it. So to cut a very long story short, um, we went to NASA and NASA, who I really respect and work with a lot, they produced us these incredible ice melters, which run on solar. So you fill up these pots with ice and snow, put them on the sledge with a solar panel. Guess what? You've got hot water in six hours. As a backup for any polar travelers listening, you know, jet aviation fuel is the only and the best way of melting water at minus 40. It's heaven. But we would have backup fuels, not jet fuel, but fuel made from biofuels, from you know, recycled plastic bottles into jet fuel, from garbage and rubbish, household garbage and rubbish into jet fuel, even sucking out CO2 from the atmosphere and making that into jet fuel. So that would be our backup to the solar. Very excited I was, Matt. I have to say, didn't last long, but I was hugely excited to go off. I'd forgotten how awful it was on this journey with my son. You know, I think it's important that generations join together today because we are in a survival situation on this planet and we can't work separately. So it was great. Off we went to the pole and I was so excited. And then after 300 miles, my left hip decides it's had enough and it starts to disintegrate and as ben and lots of people will tell you you can take a bit of pain i can they can but if you can't sleep you begin to hold up the team and fall to bits so as you've heard i failed in everything in life but i'd never failed to get to the pole when i said i was going to get there so 300 miles in I have to abandon ship. And this time, of course, it's great, you know, on the satellite phone saying, I can't move another leg and the plane arrives. It was great. But it was a horrible day because I'd failed. I'd failed Barney. I'd failed everybody in my rather limited way of thinking. Went back to the base, to Union Glacier and followed Barney's progress again on the satellite phone. Morning, Barney. Morning, Dad. Great stuff. And he, um, Kyle and Martin, his two incredible companions, reached the South Geographic Pole, achieved their mission. And really, it was a great day for me because I could celebrate what Barney had done. So if some PR guru Matt had said, well, what's the best storyline for this expedition? It would be the old warrior battles on, falls to bits, handsome son, reaches pole, makes mission happen. So it was great to pass that thing to Barney, and Barney's doing some incredible stuff now. So there we are. But remember, I'm 300 miles out now from the crossing of the Antarctic landmass. And to be blunt with you, I was not going to look at a map of Antarctica for the rest of my life. Ask Ben, ask anybody, you know, you're always looking at a map of the Antarctic if you've done the stupid things we've done. So I wasn't gonna look at the gap, cut a long story short, went back with an absolute A team, 
uh, needed the best. And uh, Johanna and Katinka uh, from Sweden and Norway would lead the expedition. Top polar travelers, incredible people. Joined by Kyle, our brilliant cameraman, photographer who'd been with Barney. And we set off at the end of 2019, early 2020, to complete those last 300 miles to the pole. And this was great. This was the first time that I actually ever enjoyed polar travel with a, just an incredible team. Learned so much from Katinka and Johanna about leadership and polar travel. And it wasn't all sort of gloomy and grim. I actually enjoyed it. We get 97 miles from the pole. And I was thinking on that day, we were exactly at the spot where Shackleton in 1909 had turned back from the South Pole on his Nimrod expedition. Took my bloody focus off things because I had a brand new hip installed to do this. Went out of the tent, fell over awkwardly, and the hip blows out of its socket. And I'm lying there crying in the snow, 97 miles out after 1,460 miles on foot over 33 years of battling, three major expeditions, 170 days of pulling sledges and we're 97 clicks out and I'm messed up. And I thought, okay, game on. You know, twice not back, third time lucky. So came back in the middle of COVID, had the hip put back in and a few extra nuts and bolts. I was laughing with uh, Ben about this the other day, a few extra nuts and bolts. And at the end of this year, 2021, I'm going to go back with Barney and we're going to complete, and Kyle, going to complete those 97 miles to the South Pole. And so it doesn't sound too selfish and self-centered, I've managed to pull together a fantastic team of wounded veterans, women and men from all over the world, who are going to join me. We start at 83, sorry, 88.23 South, and we'll meet our fantastic team of wounded veterans at 89 degrees South, and then celebrate the word resilience, because we're going to need resilience, Matt, to survive on Earth, we're going to need resilience to make sure that we have the sense to leave Antarctica alone. And we will reach the South Pole, fingers crossed. And then I'm going to take a very large drill, get some very big bolts, and bolt my skis onto the wall because that's bloody it. I'm not surprised. <laughs> game, game. hopefully, game completed, game done, but in some style, and I hope it doesn't sound too yucky and too sort of, um, I felt we deserve to call this expedition undaunted, because I feel undaunted um, right now to do it. Nice. Yeah, no, it's brilliant. I mean, finish what you started, right? Yeah, do what you say you're going to do in a world full of empty words. I think it's important. I think that right now it's important that people feel hope. And people often say to me, what business are you in? And I say, well, it's certainly not financial. You know something? I'm 64 and I have 5,000 US dollars to my name. I live in a rented small house in the middle of the Sierra Mountains in California. And I have no savings, never invested anything, put everything that we have into what we've done. And I thought I'd calculate it before I spoke to you today that we've raised over 35 years, 60 million pounds to do all these things. And I never saved any of it. But who cares? Who cares? Because I think that you know, that's a new challenge. Maybe I'll become a saver now. Um, and uh, I, I am proud of what we've achieved. And I want to be able to say that 
you know, when you get to my age, and it's a bit depressing, really, when you when you hear Ben, for example, saying, well, you know, when I was a teenager, I read Rob's book in the footsteps of Scott, and it inspired me to possibly go into polar exploration. And look what the hell he's done. You know, the greatest polar Antarctic journey ever to the pole and back, the longest, you know, it's incredible. And it annoys me so much that People don't kind of recognize some of the things that people do today, great things like Ben and others, because everything's become like this. Oh, well, you know, we can, you know, oh, well, I might get a selfie. And then, you know, no, people are sort of forgetting that, you know, the reality of a lot of these things. So, you know, I, I just feel, Matt, that what's important is that, you know, I'm still in the ring. And, for me, that counts to be able to hopefully make sure 20 years from now that we, may, we have one continent that we've left alone, and that's worth battling for. Are you winning? Oh, yeah. Game on. We're just getting warmed up now. Um, I've even joined Instagram. You might put it at the end. Don't laugh, Matt, but I've just joined it, been beaten by Barney and everybody into action um, to be on it, and it's Robert. C Swan, Robert C Swan, initial C, and I've got about four followers, but we're going to get millions in the next 20 years, because if that's the platform that young people engage with, I must make an effort. Oh, yeah, we're going to win, because, and I tell you what, I feel that we're going to win even more because of what's happened to our world in the last year. A lot of people don't join the dots, but this has all happened because we messed with the environment. And you know that, but not very many people have joined those dots. You know, bats, pangolins that don't even live in China, us. And I think that it's a salient lesson for us all to think that we can't screw with it because it'll come and slap us. And I hope that things like the preservation of Antarctica is hopeful. I tell you, we're going in November on our ship to Antarctica, and we've had more applications, more enthusiasm, more buy-in to any expedition than we've had since we started this in 2002. Why? Because people need hope, and hopefully we can provide that inspiration and they can go back feeling good about their lives, yeah. make an impact. So forgive my stupid question, humour me. Why does Antarctica need protecting? Antarctica needs protecting for quite a lot of reasons, actually. One, that if I removed your memory today, your life wouldn't be much fun, would it? If you could remember nothing. Antarctica is our global memory. Every year across the snow, we've walked endlessly. It snows a metre. That meter gets squashed down, 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 down. And you can drill down into the ice of the Antarctic and pull up ice cores where just like a tree has a ring in it, you can see from that ring, that layer of ice that was laid down hundreds of hundreds of thousands of years ago, you can see exactly what the average temperature was on the planet, what pollution there was, all kinds of different things. And gradually, as you come up, you can start to see the record of what we've been doing to our planet possibly in the last 150 years. So it's a memory. Don't mess with the memory first. Secondly, I think that it is important symbolically. What are people going to think of us 10,000 years from now? Not a lot, but symbolically, I believe as things fold in on us, and they are, and they will more, that it's important that people have this image that there's one place that's shining and hopeful for peace and for science. And I think lastly, is that one of the reasons that I'm taking some wounded veterans to the South Pole all have suffered these injuries in war 
And Antarctica has never been sullied by war. And I believe that if people feel it's up for grabs, maybe people won't go to World War Three over it, but it will create all kinds of anger. It will create all kinds of friction. I think it's best just to clear the decks and say, um, you know, that's enough. So I think that's all the good reasons, and there's an even better reason really, is that the wildlife in Antarctica is pretty much on the edge. You know, if you mess with anything for a penguin's life, you know, it's gonna die. So I think that's another reason. And I think it's worth it somehow. And I'd like to end up by saying that, you know, as I said earlier, <clears throat> Matt, we're just getting warmed up here. Because once I've bolted those damn skis to the wall, that uh, in three years' time, I'm launching a voyage for 2041. And we've kind of already done this for eight years earlier. I didn't mention that, but we sailed around the world on a voyage for cleaner energy using our yacht, uh, 2041, to... Um, get the message out on renewable energy, but I'm launching a voyage, 10-year voyage, starting in three years' time, um, around the world, a circumnavigation at not high latitudes. So nice and sunny. I'm going to visit nations that uh, will have no interest at all in the exploitation of Antarctica, but possibly might get behind the preservation of Antarctica by saying, look, you know, we're a nation on this planet. We have a right to say, let's save it. Um, do sort of thing you're doing. Um, probably not as well, but try. Um, podcasts from the yacht. Uh, go and visit schools, universities, colleges and schools all over the world. But to go in person. And uh, that will take me to about, I don't know, five years out from 2041. By then, I might maybe employing a walking stick to sort of point at people. And those last five years, you know, will be all about TV campaigns, um, using the followers that I have on uh, Instagram to really fire it in and get the job done. Because what can happen with these things is that they go under the radar map. And that lots of boring people, bureaucrats, kind of get behind closed doors and they make decisions about Antarctica and we don't know about them. So my job is to keep that up on the radar so people will make the right choice. And they'll make the right choice because what people often forget is people make the right choice if voters want them to make the right choice. Yeah. And... Could you explain the significance, as you see it, of the Antarctic Treaty? The Antarctic Treaty is the most successful treaty ever signed. Somebody should take that as an example of how a treaty should happen, because a lot of countries, I think eight countries, claimed Antarctica. And everybody had their little slice of the cake. Of course, there was a second race to the South Pole, which very few people know about. There was a second race to the South Pole in the year I was born, 1956. And the race was between the Soviet Union and the United States. And whoever got there first could claim the center of all the other claims. So whoever got that center bit would, in theory, have a claim to each area that other people were claiming. And things were sort of moving along pretty well and everybody was doing science and all those sort of things. And then in the 80s, up it came that people were talking about exploitation and Jacques Cousteau came in the ring. And this is when he really became, and I'm not hoping sounding arrogant, became a good friend, that he said, right, Rob, got to get our shit together here and get this moratorium, this protocol signed. And that was signed in 1991. Basically just said, hands off the whole thing. Hence, 2041. 
of course, there's always a complication in life. Um, and that puts into perspective why we had that re reasonably tough time helping the Russians clear their rubbish. Because in 2041, oh, sorry, 1991, the Russians couldn't sign up to the moratorium because they had no money. And part of their commitment would be to clean up their existing stations if they signed the moratorium. And that's where we came in in a small way to go and help them clean up their shit so they could eventually ratify that treaty. So the action takes place between 2041 and 2048 because the Russians weren't able to ratify the treaty until 1998. That's a whole lot of bureaucratic words, but basically it's game on. Um, at the worst, to get another 50 years, and then it's down to you, Matt, Ben, my son Barney, to take up the ball, because I can guarantee you, in, by 2048, you know, I'm going to be chilling out somewhere. <laughs> Yeah. possibly on a Pacific island that I will find on the voyage around the world. Where it's never snowed. <laughs> never. Never. Um, do you think that the treaty will be renewed? Yes, I do. I don't think it's not the treaty itself because that lasts. And how they did it, which was very clever, actually, which I didn't say, sorry, is that they said, OK, don't worry about it. Keep your claims but for a while, let's put those to one side and call Antarctica this natural reserve land for science and peace. Very clever, because people couldn't argue against that, saying, oh, well, I'm missing my claim and all the rest of it. And, you know, I believe in 2041, 2048, we will get, at the worst, another 50 years. And we have to fight for that. And... I'm proud to say I feel that we have fought and we will continue to fight damn hard for the next um, 20 years. And, you know, luckily these days, there are thousands of people who will listen to this conversation. So what would you like each of them to do? Well, A, for God's sake, Robert C. Swan, like me or hate me. <laughs> Secondly, is that um, everything that people do your incredible expeditions that you have done already and you will do in the future. Anybody who's listening is a traveler or you know, gets out there and does extraordinary things. To realize that to do extraordinary things, we go to places that are extraordinary. You know, we're not going to South Detroit to do an expedition. We're going to the Antarctic, the Arctic, to the Himalayas, these extraordinary last wildernesses. And while we're doing these great things, we should think, what are we doing with it? And try and give something back in a small way. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, I have two, two final questions, if, if I may, that I always ask everyone. What scares you? What used to scare me was failure. But I failed now twice to get to the South Pole when I said I was, and I'm quite inspired by failure, actually. I, what really scares me is to feel that I didn't do my best and I can't give up. You know, I'm not flipping Superman or anything. And sometimes it is hard financially, physically, mentally to keep it all going. So I just, my biggest fear is that that lazy side of me, and I'm really lazy deep down rises up and I don't keep things going. But I'm very happy when I think that you, Barney, Ben, lots of other great people can keep the, go the game going. So really, I'm not really frightened of much. Nice. What brings you hope? What brings me hope is when I'm speaking to a group of students or young people who come with me on our fantastic expeditions to the Antarctic. And I look at their faces and I think this is worth it because this is big for them. 
and that gives me a lot of hope. And what, and then you speak to them, you know, three years later, and they say, Rob, you have no idea. This is what's been happening. This is what I've done. This is what's going on. This is the impact I've had. Fantastic. That gives me hope. And I think that what gives me hope is that bottom line, the world is actually quite good at staying alive. And I think we've proved that in the last year with sort of vaccines coming out in five minutes and all the rest of it. So I have hope that the human race isn't all on a suicidal mission to extinction. I think that there's hope that we can pull it round. Otherwise, I possibly wouldn't bother and go to the desert island earlier. So I do have hope. Okay, Rob, um, that was sensational. Thank you so much. We'll leave it there. Thanks for listening. For more information, visit theadventurepodcast.co.uk. The podcast is hosted by Matt Pycroft and produced and distributed by Pip Saunders and Alex Hall. If you'd like to get in touch, then you can email us at info at theadventurepodcast.co.uk or keep in touch on Instagram at theadventurepodcast.co.uk.